0: with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by George Firth opened April 26, 1970 at the Alvin Theatre. Still considered today to be one of the most impactful concept musicals, its source was a project of 11 one-act plays planned for actor Kim Stanley as each of the separate leads. After Sondheim read the plays, he asked Hal Prince, for his opinion, and it was he who proposed the plays would make the basis for a musical, one of the first in the 1970s to deal with adult themes and relationships.
1: Five, five, six, seven, Really about, isn't it? That's what it's really about. Really about oh.
0: us today is Raul Esparza, best known for his work in film and television, and especially on the stage in Leap of Faith, Arcadia, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Speed the Plow, Taboo, Roadshow, and Tick Tick Boom, among others. For his performance as Bobby in the 2006 Broadway revival of Company, he was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical. Robert Falls, Artistic Director of the Goodman Theatre, whose renowned career includes works in the world of opera and theater, including Broadway's Desire Under the Elms, American Buffalo, Talk Radio, Shining City, Long Day's Journey Into Night, Aida, A Moon for the Misbegotten, and Death of a Salesman, for which he received the 1999 Tony Award for Direction. And actor, director, and writer Lonnie Price, who burst onto the scene creating the role of Charlie Kringus in the original production of Sondheim and Firth's Merrily We Roll Along. One of the most accomplished interpreters of the works of Stephen Sondheim, he has directed Sweeney Todd, Gypsy, Sunday in the Park with George, Anyone Can Whistle, Passion, and Company. Welcome, everyone, to the roundtable. I'm so So honored to uh, have this discussion with you about Company, uh, one of my favorite shows. I like to start at the beginning for each of us, where Company came into our lives, either as an audience member or a production that we may have worked on. For me, um, this was an unusual show because I, I first got the album the vinyl, and then I read the scripts, both the original and the revised script before I ever saw a production. And it's a show I've seen so many times. I honestly don't remember the first time I saw it on stage, but I came to it more in a scholarly fashion than as an audience member. Um, How about the rest of you? When did you first
2: come upon uh, company? Well, this is the only thing I really have to tell this is the only story I really have to tell because I've never worked on a production of company, although like you, I've seen an unusual number of them uh, and have always loved the experience. It's one of those things for me. It's like I've actually, you know, you go see Hamlet. an equally mysterious play as a matter of fact to company where the mystery is sort of i think what's sort of interesting about it and i've seen so many and the real joy of seeing so many companies is to see the interpretation that an actor playing bobby or the director bring to it uh, so i've seen a lot but it was one of the reasons michael when you invited me to maybe come on one of these with my favorite sondheim uh Sondheim's, i instantly jumped at the chance because company really changed my life. Uh, I was 16 years old, uh, living uh, uh, downstate Illinois in a small farming community where I'd been an obsessive musical theater fan, listening to my parents' albums of My Fair Lady and Oklahoma and Gypsy and Brigadoon. It's really what brought me into the theater were these albums. And I didn't really know who Sondheim was in a way. I was 16, it was 1970. I mean, I knew that he'd written these lyrics and he'd, he'd done these things and I went out. As soon as company was released, I'd read a review of it and bought the album and it literally blew my mind. It was literally 1970, 16 years old, growing up on traditional book musicals and listening to this and the, the fact that it was so modern, the fact that it's so challenging, so wonderful Uh, literally blew my mind and from that moment on i became an obsessive fan uh, including i realized stealing uh, this uh, copy out of my high school library and i didn't realize that until i went to look at it this afternoon and i saw property of willowbrook high school so that's how desperate i am so that was really my introduction to it, was really within months of it appearing and the cast album coming out. Bob, you blew your cover
0: today. They're gonna come for you now. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna go next because I think
3: Raúl is probably later, because I'm I'm around where you are. First of all, I wanna say what a pleasure it is to be on a panel with uh, Bob Falls, whose work I have just admired and loved for so long and seen almost all of it. It's certainly all the New York oh. stuff. And, Honestly, and Death of a Salesman was just one of the greatest things ever. And and Raul, whose uh, work I continue to just admire and, uh, and love watching. So um, this is great. And, Michael, you're no schlep either. I enjoy you. So, <laughs> so it's a pleasure to be here. Um, the reason I want to start is because mine started uh, at 1970, and I bet Raul's didn't. <sighs> um, I was uh, – I grew up in New York in Queens, and part of the uh, gift of a kid in Queens uh, for Jewish kids where you were taken to a matinee of – a musical, in my case, you know, uh, every year since I was uh, three or four, and that year I wanted to see Applause because I like the ads, but they couldn't get tickets. And my uh, family, uh, my mother said, well, they called their broker, and they couldn't do Applause. But um, this new show opened that's supposed to be great for kids. <laughs> so my grandmother and I took me, took me. My grandmother and I went to see Company on the occasion of my eleventh birthday. So I saw Company on my 11th birthday, and it had just opened, uh, oh, wow. uh, just a minute ago, because I saw Dean Jones. Um, and um, as for you, Bobby, change, you know—it it blew me away. It was the greatest music I'd ever heard. Uh, it's still the greatest music I've ever heard. I, I think it's my—it's really the Desert Island Record. If there's one, it would be that. That original cast album is to me just beyond it's everything I love about the theater. I think it's Steve's arguably his best score. I mean, there's so many of them, but it's my favorite to listen to. I will say that. Um, and um, it was the first album I ever bought. EJ Corvette's wow. 320, 329 mono, 379 stereo. I went for the stereo. <laughs> I went yeah. for the stereo and I'm not <laughs> sad I did. Um, and uh, yeah, And it's just been in my life, my whole life. I mean, that the sound of Steve's music is still the most thrilling music in the world to me and you know that original cast album is just jumps off the vinyl jumps off the cd on the file whichever i have it on all mediums uh you know all versions of how you can listen to music and um yeah it's still the most um and i as a kid i didn't know what it was about i'm sure but it was the sound of the music that, it felt like it was my music. It felt like, oh, if I were to be expressed in music, I would like to be expressed that way in terms of its intelligence, its sexiness, its rhythms, its aliveness. I think it's just the most alive music ever. And, um, you know, and so it was the beginning of my love affair with Steve, so, uh, and his, his work. And that's when I was uh, 11, wow. so. When a person
1: personality- you should not have stood like a lump it's harder than a matador for worse than a bull to try to get you off of your rump so seem to lend a chance of an attractive man is everything a person could wish but turning off a person is the act of a man who likes to pull the hooks out of fish Person You can blow a person's poop Like you make a person feel a huggy While you make her feel a fool When a person says to you, Bob, send her That's when you're good You impersonate a person better Than a zombie should I could understand the person If he wasn't good and bad I could understand the person If he actually was dead you to do, 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 do exclusive you, exclusive you, when any person ever gets the juice of you. You're crazy, you're a lovely person, you're a moving, technology all the never to be trusted, crazy person, you're safe, Bobby is my
3: hobby and I'm giving it up. Uh, my grandmother and I... Uh... Really enjoyed company. I think I more than she. But um
2: Well, it was for kids. It was a great show it
3: was, for kids. And she was, you know, old world. She was from, you know, the old country and I'm sure she was hoping for Oklahoma and there it was. But what um was that? Yeah, yeah, you know, what was it? And one thing I remember aside from the set and all of how but one of the few things in the stage in which I've never seen since And it's probably, I don't know if it's Michael Bennett or how, but they did the bows and they came down and the company bow and the curtain bounced behind them. So they bowed and the curtain came behind them and bounced and then they stepped back and it came in front of them. But I still have never seen. And so to see it come, you think, oh, my God. And then it's they're in front of it. And that was just such a. I've never seen it since. And it was just sounds very, like even Hal. as a kid, you must, that sounds like Michael, I don't know, maybe how. I don't know, or maybe Michael like, Bennett. Oh, you know, it was so... just, it was thrilling. <laughs> but you know, at 11 to remember, I remember that show more than I do most shows I've seen, you know, at 12, uh, I remember that show um, much better. Anyway, so um, that's my early morning, my early story of the company. Raul, please.
4: Uh, Yeah. I I definitely didn't see it until many years later, uh, from 1970. Um, I think that's the year I was born, but, so, where... My parents said they saw it, but I don't know if they actually did. They also think they saw Follies, but they're not sure if they did either. I mean, they were new immigrants to America, and they were living in Wilmington, Delaware, and somehow they would come to New York and see these shows, and they sort of knew about the shows, but I I don't... they tell me these sort of like stories of seeing the show about showgirls that they think they saw, but they're not, mm. it's very frustrating because they can't quite remember, <laughs> which is sort of perfect for Follies and Company. Mm-hmm. Um, and that story that you told Bob, I like actually, I, that's me with Lonnie, not with Company, but that's me with Lonnie's recording of Mary Lee. Yeah. I, I bought that album and would sit at home playing the album over and over again, mm. trying to keep up with Lonnie doing Charlie. <laughs> it was like, Maybe someday I'll be able to do this. Maybe someday. I remembered like that was my total uh, introduction actually to, the, that's the musical that made me fall in love with Sonheim. That, that one. Cause I had seen Sweeney Todd and it blew me away, but that's the one that made me hmm. feel- oh, I could do that. I don't know what that is, but that's, I've never heard that. I could do that. These people sound like us. These, these actors, like, oh, oh, I recognize them. With Company, I remember seeing, I'm not gonna name any names, but I saw a very star studded production at one point in the nineties. Um, In California and I loathed it and that was the first time that I had ever seen company Um, I wanted to see it because I knew that it was an important uh, Play in the Sondheim sort of canon and I had never seen it and I was uh, Excited to go and then there was something sort of um, Stuck in amber about it and it felt like a sitcom and it just nothing about it felt True to me and it also was annoying and I couldn't sort of I, the music didn't say anything to me. I just hated everything about the production, mm. but I couldn't get it out of my head, and that's always been the case with the show. It's a show of his that I never particularly enjoyed, and then I would see other productions mm. of it and go, "I still don't like this. I still don't like this. I found it brittle. I found the characters unlikable. I didn't understand who Bobby was or why he was. I didn't, and I think I just had, was introduced to it at a place where I, I was me either too young to appreciate what what the characters were going through or too uh, stuck in the sort of 70s versions of it that I was seeing. And then there was the production at the Kennedy Center when we did the Sondheim Celebration, which had some performances that were really some, like, knockouts. And that began to be a place where you're like, I was struck by so much beauty. But by then I was 30 Mm. and the show, I was going, oh, wait a minute, (laughs) oh, okay. Thank you. theater in Miami but we would go see these touring productions where, where I grew up you know it would always be like Robert Goulet and Camelot and Robert Goulet and Carousel and Robert Goulet and or the Sandy Duncan and Peter Pan he was in it. and you know and so but so everything that I saw was so utterly traditional that the, what I was looking at eventually for musicals mm. later the Sondheim stuff made almost no sense to me it just it did not compute it took a long time for me to get to a place where I could understand and appreciate what, what he was doing so yeah, that's my introduction. And it took working on the show to be able to appreciate it. Hmm.
0: I wonder, Lonnie, if, if Dean Jones's presence in that show is what made people think it was for kids. Did they think of it was the love Boat?
2: Oh. oh, that's interesting. On
3: uh, that cat
0: or whatever. You know, all yeah, those Disney I wonder. Movies I, she
3: did. Um, just, um, I that's interesting. I think the 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 broker was fucking with us, or he had no idea. (laughs) I just think he had no idea. I I I think it was the first Saturday matinee after the opening. I honestly think it was because I think Dean Jones left really fast. Yeah. So um, I think it was really early in it, and um, I just thought probably they had tickets, you know, and he was like, you know, oh, see this, you know, it just opened. Um, yeah. Didn't Dean Jones make a
4: deal with Hal to like get out of the show quick?
3: Yeah. He had a real, he was really unhappy and apparently in his marriage and all and so I think Hal said just open it and you can go. And, uh, and of course only Hal can do this. Then Larry Kirk got nominated for a Tony as a replacement and only in those years would Hal be able to have that kind of power to swing that. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I, something like that. I, I don't, I thought he was great. I mean, I was 11, but I think he's great on the album. I think mm-hmm. he's, oh. and the filming of it, the Pennebaker filming of it. I think he's just sensational. A lot um, of pain in so. him,
4: which is really amazing. In that yes. Movie. Yes.
2: A yes he's
3: a great the, voice. Just a uh, love,
2: I, great yep, voice. yeah, I, I've, I've actually was always obsessed with the Pennebaker when I saw that as well. And I hadn't seen it for at least 20 years. And when it was just released, you know, you know, fairly recently on the Criterion channel, again, the freshness of it just blew me away. I, I like actually cried through it. You know, you just hear those orchestrations begin. Uh, you just look at them. and And I found Dean Jones intensely moving and tortured in that. Now, even if he hated being in it, you know, which may be true, it sort of gave something to it.
1: Somebody hurt me too deep.
0: Somebody sit in my chair and ruin my sleep and make me aware of being
1: alive. Being alive. Somebody need me too
0: much. Somebody know me too well. Somebody pull me up short, put me through hell, give me support for being
1: alive, make me alive.
3: very complicated as you are role you know what i mean it's a very complicated it's a very hard. it's a hard i mean i just uh the one i do is with neil patrick harris and uh and we did it obviously very quickly and um and he um and i'll be interested to hear what you think role because uh, you know, first all he said god this is a really hard part and i went well you react all night you know what i mean you yeah. you are in general the least interesting thing happening on the stage. And I don't mean that in you're not interesting, but that you are not the focus of the scenes. You that's are been the, the that's bystander the of the yeah. scenes. That's the that, of this, I think he was surprised this. by by that. I think he didn't realize quite how difficult it is to be engaged and not be doing. You know, it it doesn't there he's not active in a lot of it. He's reactive. Mm-hmm. which, um, I don't know, I'd love to hear how you would address that, bro, in, in your performance.
4: I think it's one of the reasons that the way that we did it with John ended up working so well. And, mm-hmm. and uh, something about the central metaphor worked so brilliantly. The idea that he was a man who could not play for himself, and he had to learn how to play for himself, that his friends mm-hmm. were his company, and that his friends accompanied him. And that at a certain, I remember sitting with John the first time we met to talk about the part. I had seen his Sweeney Todd three times. I couldn't get enough of it, and just still sort of obsessing about what they were doing. And I wasn't sure if I liked it. I just couldn't shake it, and just kept wanting to deal with it. And how often does that happen with the directors' work? When uh, I was asked to come in to meet him about Bobby, and I, I told him exactly the story I just said. Now I was like, I don't get this show, but I think there's probably something great there that we're missing. And. We both said at the same time, I think this needs to be told from Bobby's perspective. We need to be entirely inside his head. Everything about this needs to be inside Bobby's head, his point of view at all times. And so therefore, I said, well then, if they're playing the instruments, he can't play. So we both, at the very same time, went, well, he has to learn to play for himself at some point. And we didn't know which song that would be. Would it be Marry Me a Little, or would it be, if, if Steve let us do Marry Me a Little, didn't know at the time or would it be being alive and and so i learned that i learned a bunch of i learned side by side on the piano and little by little we were like well it has to be being alive it has to be what is that moment that 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 is i think one of the central things that that helped me get into the character was Mm -hmm. someone who is longing to do someone who's listening all the time, affected all the time, the life of the party, the guy everybody wants to be, the guy everybody puts stuff on. You know, George always said that he based Bobby on Warren Beatty, who was his roommate in college, and that Warren is the guy all the women wanted to fuck and all the guys wanted to be. (laughs) Like, that's... Mm. And so, Bobby becomes this... um, He's not a cipher, but he becomes this um, surface for everybody to put themselves on. The couples use him constantly. As a sounding board, What is that doing to him? He is trying somehow to change. And it was really fascinating to force everything into a sort of constant running monologue to earn that last song and earn that moment. Mm -hmm. Steve actually said this, that they had had um, an ending originally where I think they all come back to the park Mm -hmm. after being alive and they're all in the park and they all play different characters from the ones they played that night. And uh, you, you meet, I think maybe the actress playing? I don't know who it was, which actress it was. uh, Sits with Bobby on a park bench and they sort of talk for a moment. And it ends with a happy birthday, Robert, as they're sort of walking out of the park together. This was an epilogue idea. And Hmm. like, Stritch was like a jogger and someone was a bird watcher. They were all playing different characters. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then she, they sort of engage. In as
3: a jogger shows. is really delicious by the way. <laughs> I sort of love I that idea though. That's kind
4: of lie. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Bobby, at that last moment in the show, he said, Steve said, Bobby just kind of begins to reach for the girl's hand as the curtain came down. And when we had that conversation, I remember going, it's about, he wants to make a gesture. He just doesn't know how. So yeah. the whole show was about getting to that, that gesture. What is the gesture? What is the step? What is the thing he can finally do? And within a week of rehearsals of thinking about it that way, I realized, oh wait, I'm in a masterpiece. Oh how gently we'll talk. Oh how softly we'll tread. all
1: the stings, the ugly things will keep
0: on said will be.
4: Oh almost also because of the way john works it works very well in that pared down incredibly still very stylized almost cinematic quality Mm -hmm. that we had that's not the only way to do company i missed some of the exuberance and joy that i think that show has from us you know i think it's very funny and sort of bright but that did definitely also gave me a real like pinpoint way in
2: i i think that's i just have to say i thought your performance was remarkable in that and and um was the by far the deepest uh you know we're talking about loving you know uh, you know dean jones in this you know just although i didn't see the performance but i think it was your stillness and it was your focus and the fact of how brilliantly you did listen that just brought us at all times to you you know it's like you, you know bobby has been discussed, of course, endlessly. And I'm sure all three of us, all four of us have talked about Bobby, this enigma. And he remains that enigma, which is sort of what I said at the beginning. There's something so mysterious because we never do know what he's thinking. I have no idea, you as an actor, what you might have been thinking during all of those scenes about all of those people. But when I watched you, it was so activated and so focused that at all times you were present. So by the time we got to the end, we felt like we'd been on a deep journey with somebody. And yeah, it was like we were filling you in. You know, It's like Bobby is a little bit of a hollow man. I mean, that's his, he's a little hollow. It's like, that's his, the complexity he has and he has to be filled in. And you're right, the friends projected on him, but as an audience, we kind of project on him too. And and I think you're right about Doyle's production was it was allowed to be sort of crystalline on that very simple, dark, bare stage.
4: I think some of the warmth for for me came actually from the concept of company. That is, one of the things that John does is the way he works, where you are aware of what every other actor is doing on stage at any given time. Mm. He never really runs the show. He runs the show for character. So that means that we were all able to kind of be like, oh, that's what Jenny's doing right now. Oh, that's what Joanne's doing. That's Amy's doing. Mm. And it's a great way of looking at this musical, because at any given point in the night, I knew how we were all making the night happen. I never felt solitary, it felt like a company, which is I think the right way to think about the show. It is about Bobby, of course, but they're all making it
2: oh, yeah. Up. All of well, I think if I could just also then, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go to Lonnie for a minute, in terms of your production, which certainly didn't look like it only had its few weeks of rehearsal, but it's sort of what Raul said, your production in a way was a little bit of not the opposite, but the exuberance oh. of your production, mm-hmm. totally. this incredible exuberance and sense of comedy that you found and sort of sense of movement, you know, moving the scenery around so effortlessly and elegantly. And it was always intriguing to me, these two great productions, that one had this minimalist musical, you know, just the the actors as musicians, where you had what seemed to be a glorious 35, 40 musicians playing. So it had all of these bright colors and it still played absolutely as brilliantly as the darker, more thoughtful production that that, uh, John Doyle did with Raoul.
3: Thank you. I'm, I'm, I, I, yeah, you know, I, I wonder if it's just as as I experience the show, and musically, I experience it as um, so balls to the wall. Just so, you know, the brass and just just the sound of it to me is so um, bombastic and so confident and so um, and layered, but. Um, my experience of it it is that it is very joyful. And I I think of it honestly as looking at each of those scenes as uh, to me, it's about who's got the power in relationships In every couple, someone's got the power and somebody is um, manipulating the other or someone is subservient to the other. So my approach in some ways was finding in each couple who that was and Bobby's reaction to that, saying, oh, that, that doesn't look so good, or that looks, that that it, he was always reacting to watching a, a power play. So anyway, that was sort of my yeah. into it, it. And I did think that, um I just think it's funny and very primary colored in some ways. Um But I enjoyed John's production because I thought it was the upside down of that. Do you know what I mean? It was looking, I should yeah. say very crystalline at that, and I maybe it's just my sensibility and also just um, the actors I had too of wanting the um, uh, wanting it to be very joyful, and the pain coming out of that uh, was sort of my um, my thought my thought
1: mm-hmm. about it. Uh, Harry, could I have another bourbon? No. No. Wait, 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 wait,
0: wait, wait! No. Oh. Oh. i kind of right in the middle of. The- It's not talk of God and the decade ahead that allows you to get to the worst It's I do and you don't and nobody said that
1: And who brought the subject up first? It's the little things The little things, the little things, the little things The little ways you to try together Try together, try together, together lie, lie together, lie together. together. That make
5: perfect relationships Becoming a cliché together Growing old and grey together
1: Withering away together That make marriage a joy
5: It's not so hard to be married It's
1: much the cleanest of crimes
5: It's not so hard to be married
1: I've done it three or four times It's It's people that you hate together
4: Bait together
1: date together. together that make marriage
4: joy It's things like using force together shouting
5: till your horse together
1: getting a divorce together that make
5: perfect relationships uh-huh. <laughs> kiss, kiss.
3: Of directing the cameras for John's production. Um, so it was very informative to see what he did and also Raoul's performance, which in a film I think was in some ways easier to get inside his head because I could always just... Uh, it wasn't about the action. It was about his reaction to the action. And in a stage, you can do that with lighting, but in a camera, I just put the camera on a roll and started to push in on him and I could see all of that inner stuff, which is... Um, I think what john intended so um i really I was felt that happy with what you did
4: actually that's exactly like we weren't there for the rehearsals but what you were getting entirely what we were trying to do oh i hope and so like, i see the film you made of us where it's like oh that, that's definitely us obviously my version of the show will always be different frankly i always think back to the one in cincinnati where we were on uh-huh. the thrust stage like the regional theater production is the one that's in my head not the broadway sometimes but what you found was definitely the sort of inside his mind quality and the joy of what john gave me is that that is that does work for camera like sometimes musical theater performances can look rather silly on on screen if you're if you're not shot right in this case i would it's almost like giving a film performance the way that John had originally staged it. But I do remember sitting in rehearsals going, Steve is gonna hate every last minute of what we're doing to the show. Why did you think so? Because he had told me one day, he goes, I know how this part should be played. He's just a big kid who needs to grow up. It's very, very simple. There's a lot of joy in this. You've played much more complicated parts for me. You know, this guy's just like, he's just kind of bright and happy. He's just a big kid. That's all this is doing some rehearsals and I'm going, Oh my God.
2: <laughs> this is a, a fine example of why Steve hasn't directed many of his productions. I think, <laughs> you know, because you, you know, you just go back as I'm sure both of you and, and Michael as well, you know, you just go back. It's sort of like he's never understood Bobby himself. He's been struggling. It seems to me with Bobby for all of these years, because, you know, you read him over the years and with every production, he talks about Bobby. And it's an entirely different concept or where he's thinking, you know, that, that Bobby has been debated so endlessly in so many ways. But uh, I, I've always had a sense that he he doesn't know, you know, he, he just does not know, you know, entirely who he is or what's going on. I always loved that story that, you know, he realized pretty quickly that uh, not having been married, not having had a long term relationship with anyone up to that point, that he had to go to Mary Rogers, the wonderful composer, his best friend, and say, Mary, will you tell me everything you can tell me about marriage? And he sat there with a notebook on his lap, just taking notes, and said that truly informed it. And I think similarly, he's always sort of, there's a that sort of detachment to the role, which means it has to be filled by the actor and the director, is because I don't, I don't, I mean, in a way, maybe that's Firth. You know, in a way, maybe that's Firth D- didn't understand it, but 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 Steve as well. You know, that although he gets all these remarkable moments, the remarkable songs, you know,
4: I think he's interesting. It's sort of like Terence McNally writing about about uh, a couple in Frankie and Johnny. It's I feel like they both they hit the truth of something so extraordinary, You're like. What, what, how is he writing about this woman's experience so brilliantly? How is Steve and how are George writing so brilliantly about these people's experiences? Maybe he hasn't lived inside that marriage, but he can certainly oh. observe, right? And, and don't, you, don't you think Steve I can, channels... I think I think it's the nature of the show, though, though in terms of like uh, uh, the, the, the show can change. That's the greatest thing about what, what, I, what Steve does allow is each production, I think, teaches him something about what the show
2: can be. That's what I I kind of meant, Ronnie, that he puts it out there and he's learning from what he's watching constantly, which is why he's so open and he's such a genius and the generosity that Steve displays where he's like, show me. And he may come in and say, give me a little taste of it before I say yes, but go ahead and show me, show me something new, show me something fresh, bring me a new idea.
0: Yes, well, they've
3: he... done all the time. I mean, I think that that's why they're so alive. Is is that he's so willing to look at it freshly and have another director's point of view. I mean, look at the current one. I mean, right. it's, it's it's a complete rethinking yeah. of many of the aspects and the and the colors in the show. And he, you know, uh, is says, "Okay, great, I I get it." And I also know that there are other times when he's seen something and said, "No, I don't, I don't see that." That isn't that is, but. Um, is there
2: one I, where Bobby Marvel, shot himself
4: at the end? Well, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so
2: I, I, I said, there was. Remember, Michael, you're, there. You're, was there a production that did that?
0: There was, and, and, and yeah, and he shut that shit down. He shut that down. <laughs> he
2: commented though,
0: Raúl. He has he has commented that he very much appreciated where you and John arrived with the that you would not sing until the end, and, and then on reflection, he remembered that that was a similar concept that he was trying to get into Do I Hear a Waltz, that Leona, the lead character, would not sing until the end, and Richard Rodgers wouldn't let him do it. He he said it was amazing to him that you came to the same conclusion on an entirely different show, and he loves, Breaking, you know, new ground in some way. So there was a he 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 verbalized that. Lonnie, I agree with Bob in the humor about your your production uh, at the Kennedy Center. I wonder if part of that has to do with I'm uh, not not the Kennedy Center with at um, Lincoln Center at Lincoln Center. Sorry, um, if that has to do with the fact that you were using the original script from 1970 versus. The, the adjustments that were made along the way by the time Raoul did his version, which modernized it a little bit, there, when I went back and watched it, and again, part of it had to do with the fact that you kept it squarely in the 70s, by at least by in the indication of the costumes, that yeah. I felt almost inklings of the be- the very best of things like Neil Simon in the early 70s, that type of sitcom uh-huh, uh-huh. romance. Whereas the changes that come right from the very beginning in the revision where you know it sounds, Well, I'm not pregnant. I mean, that just never would have been in the in the first version. Right. So I right. felt I agree with Bob that it was there was so many solid laughs that you know are coming from George Firth in that seventies way. Um, Yeah, you know, I don't know
3: quite how much the other script has changed. I mean, I know there are some, but the scenes by and large are not that dissimilar. It's just really a question of approach. Uh, And and also, you know, it's interesting because I read that Hal had wanted to do it for television, Hal Prince, years ago (laughs) with um, the Mary Tyler Moore cast, you know, with CBS stars, uh, comic stars from sitcoms that Halid wanted to do that on television. It was after I had done this one. Um, but I'm not sure there was that many changes as much as it was just a, approach. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I did keep it in the 70s. And I also thought there was something kind of, I guess we all feel that, is that when you're laughing and then it stops and you go, oh, what what am I laughing at? That's not so cool. These people are actually unhappy, a lot of them, and they are torturing each other. And uh, maybe relationships are too difficult to deal with. I mean, they've always said that, Steve always said that marriage is hell, but being alone is worse. I mean, it's like, oh, and that's something also that I just wanna say about the show, just really importantly to me is when people say, what did Steve give the musical theater? It's so much in the song, Sorry, Grateful. What he introduced was complexity of emotion and we never had that before, you know. Along came Bill, and we had oh what a beautiful morning, and it was one color. And Steve said, no emotions. You're feeling the opposites a lot, and I think that that contribution has been sort of key to what makes him brilliant is that it's not one thing, and that I think why people who are like plays like his work better is is that it's not primary colored, even if it's even if it's brightly colored. It's got many shades in it and many contradictions in it as we feel as human beings. And that to me is what's most exciting about his work in some ways is, is that it's um, the complexity of emotion in the songs.
5: You're sorry, grateful, regretful, happy, why look for answers? Which has nothing to do with All to do with her You'll always be What you always were Which has nothing to do with All to do with her Nothing to do with
1: all to do with It
3: is nice. unique to him. uh, I think Lonnie always always
4: gives you a a clue, too, about what's um, happening in the actor or what's happening in that character. The music is, and I don't know how much that's Jonathan too, whether it's Tunic, but there's a relationship that's always happening inside the orchestra or the music, a dissonance, uh, a hint of something not quite right. Yeah. I remember um, when I knew I was going to do the role, I I walked around Midtown and hearing just the horns, the taxi cabs going by and going, Oh, that's this world, this is this neighborhood. These are these people. I know where Bobby lives. I know this is totally New York, which is another thing that he put in there musically when you talk about that. It's the complexity of, of the ambivalence that we feel in life. I am happy and I am sad. But also the sound of our world, which I don't think was existing inside these
2: no, I I think you're right, and again I, I go back to my that I think both those comments are really wonderful. You know, it is that dissonance that you hear in the music. You know, the, the beauty of the melodies, and I think it's an incredibly beautiful, melodic show. I mean, it's so insane to think how people didn't get that fully in 1970, when it's so gorgeous. It's so romantic (laughs) at times, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's just, I think that's what I responded to, having never heard anything like it. Like I said, you know, just being a kid, listening to these songs and then hearing this and like you going, oh, these are, I get it. I hear it. It's got, the dissonance is correct. You know, without knowing anything, even as a kid, you go, I think it's a wonderful statement. Sorry, grateful that life can have that complexity. That there's a ruefulness. All yeah. That that there's a ruefulness through the whole show.
4: One of my favorite musical moments is actually, um, and I don't know, nobody had really quite sung it, and I don't know if it's always sung. Um, Sorry, grateful um, crosses melodically with another hundred people, and he puts Bobby's last note way up on a B flat. So you are floating above it, and I, I've never, I was like, all right, we'll go for it, and you hit this B flat, and underneath that, in da 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 like, and it's almost banging against what's happening as Bobby fades. He finally says, "I'm ready," but it goes away musically, and what comes in is the sound of traffic and another hundred people, and then he does it again with with "Marry Me" a little, where at least when, since we were able to do it, Steve kept saying, "You can sing that song, but you can't make it any bigger than um, being alive." You cannot top being alive, you can't, nothing about it can be uh, a showstopper. Every diminuendo, every retard, everything has to be honored or I will cut it. (laughs) And so he's written, we put it in C, it's originally in B, Um, but we put it in C because it's got all kinds of accidentals, the way he writes stuff. And there's a G that Bobby hits, such a big note, right? And every one of those is a diminuendo. So again, in the music, he gives you this like, nail it, pull away. Nail it, pull away. He never lets you deliver until Mm. you're singing the high A's and being alive. And that's just a a composer acting with you, which is, I mean, I drank the Kool-Aid, man. It's just like (laughs) spoiled for life.
3: I agree with you. And you know, the great thing is, is that it makes everybody look so intelligent I mean, if you do his work, you don't have to be that good in some way. I'm saying it's good that we are good. Totally.
4: But (laughs) if
3: you just actually do the, if you just sing it as it's written, you look like a genius. And I think it's why actors, every time I've asked them to do anything, I have never had a no. I mean, ever would I've asked an actor to do a Sondheim show. I really think that that's probably true. I've never had a no. I have had a, oh shit, how can I make it work? But I've never had, oh, that doesn't interest me. It always interests people because I think it elevates us as artists. Forgive that word because I really don't use it that much, but I do think that material makes us better. I guess it's like people who love Shakespeare. It's like they could, yeah. it just, it's just our Shakespeare.
4: Totally. And you just sort of have to get out of his way. I think you're exactly right when, when you say that. And the shows Which just road? keep, like that, Bobby's a part you could play for years and not quite get to the bottom of. I felt the same way playing George. You feel it about any one of his characters, uh, I don't need to tell you how Gloria, uh, Charlie is just one of the most complicated and rich and neurotic and beautiful and soulful, angry. There's just a full human being there who happens to be in a musical. And when were people writing like that? Um, when we would dig into the show, too, there's room even for the actors to bring so much of themselves to the characters they're playing in company, yeah. which is so surprising because. You know, roles were written very specifically for particular actors. These were major stars that created this. And Stritch, in particular, was like, this was written for her, about her, with her. I think George tells the story of not knowing how to write for her, at first, and then they went to P.J. Clark's, and she went up to the bar and said, uh, he said, the barman said, what well, can I get you? And she said, I'll take a bottle of vodka and floor plan. <laughs> And he was like, okay. (laughs) But we had a moment that was such a key for me with the actress, Kelly Jean Grant, who was playing um, the girlfriend who's going away, Kathy, which was just written for, it was a moment for Donna McKechnie, I think, in act one, Inside Another Hundred People. The gentle quality that that scene ended up taking on and the, the ruefulness of it became for me a complete hinge. It became the moment where Bobby realized, wait a minute, she's gone. She's, she got away. Something has changed because of the way that she played it. It's
3: a gorgeous scene. It's it's a gorgeous gorgeous scene. I mean, it's simple and elegant. And and also that line, you got to know when to come to New York and you got to know when to go. Do you know what I mean? There's such profundity in that little scene with that girl. You don't even know.
4: I love that scene. And then she's gone and something just goes for Bobby right there. But for all of us, we're just like, what was that? I'll be a good wife. I want real things now, a husband and a family.
0: I I don't want to keep running around this city like I'm having a life.
4: The problem is you want too little. That's the hardest thing in the world to get. Thank you for your park
2: you're welcome. Hey, let's see, it and I, we just don't
4: fit. (laughs) I think there's a time to come to New
0: York and a time to leave. Enjoy your party.
4: It, it is, it's those gentle, like, just you touch base with particular characters. April has such gorgeous moments too, with her cluelessness, <laughs> you know? Um, the the And then of course what Joanne does, because Joanne is, is to me the one that just shatters him. He sees a vision of himself. Yep. He's like, oh, this could be my future. That something finally breaks. But we also did a run through where we realized that if you were really doing the show the way that it's intended, you know, it's a night where Nothing, none of this is really happening. It's all imaginary birthday parties until the last one, really. They show up and he doesn't show up maybe. So which one does he show up to? Which is the real birthday party? That's the real question, right? So we thought, so what's really happening in the show? We did a run through for me, which was just, I did the entire play by myself. I could hear them, but I couldn't see them. They were all in the next room.
1: Hmm.
4: And what we realized was that Bobby is stoned has been drinking bourbon for two and a half hours. (laughs) Like we're like, I wonder how much it influences what happens at the end of the period. We're like, is this worth taking in that this guy is obliterated by the time he gets to the scene with Joanne? Like he has been drinking, he's just like out of it. So how much is that, like how much is he primed for a moment of just total messiness, which is wonderful for him by the end. We just sort of (laughs) laughed about it. No one could drink that much, like no, and stand up.
0: Lonnie, you mentioned earlier, you made some comparisons, which I I, I think are, are, uh, you know, worth noting. And Sondheim talks about that his, Cameron McIntosh had mentioned, uh, you know, your career has been, you spent wrestling with trying to rewrite the second act of Allegro. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, concept musical, revolutionary musical. Um, And there are shows like Oklahoma that we know were revolutions. Cabaret, of course, in its own way, Revolution. This is a show, though, that when I watch it, no matter what the production is, whether it's the original script or a revision script or or a a deep concept like uh, John Doyle's concept, I still see a revolutionary show. When I watch Mm. Oklahoma, I don't see the revolution because it's Mm. been done so many times. What is it about this show that you still sit back and go, Wow, there there is there is something happening here that even though it's now, you know, I mean it was it premiered in 1970, you still are blown away. It is still revolutionary.
3: Well, I mean, I, I think Oklahoma influenced everything after it. I mean, all the Lerner and lows, I mean, the next 50 years was 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 Oklahoma, was the integrated musical in that in that form. Um I think that it's plotless. I think that is, is a lot of it is is that it doesn't, things don't build into one into the other. I mean, Steve once said, it's like a bunch of pictures or postcards that they don't actually link up. I think as a director working with the actors and working with Bobby, I think it needs to, but that's not what he thinks he wrote. Um, but the idea that there's no plot, I think is why it always feels, there's not a lot of musicals that don't have a plot. Um, I can, In fact, I, I don't know Robert or Raul if you can think of another one that, I mean Folly sort of doesn't have a plot too, but certainly well, that music has a plot, even Pacific Overtures has a plot. Um, but there, it didn't change the way we do shows, the way Oklahoma changed the way we looked at musical theater. And I think that's also part of the sadness is, is that Steve keeps taking these steps forward And it's not like there are a lot of people that take the baton and go with it or are as as good as he is to take the baton and go with it. So um, they sort of remain as they are as sort of bases in a baseball field that don't necessarily generate more of them, uh, which is going to be interesting. You know, look at Hamilton. Are there going to be a million more rap musicals? I don't think so. I think it is what it is. And it's a full stop at what it is. Um, and we'll always think it's brilliant, but I'm not sure that it's going to change the face of the musical theater. Uh, but maybe maybe Company changes the way we thought about musical theater or the possibility of musical theater. Mm-hmm. But I don't know another show like Company. Um, I don't know. Do you guys know a, a show that reminds you of it?
4: Oh, it popped into my head, but it's not. Like, they actually... Oh, no. That I mean, I think that's the
2: miracle... You know, that's the miracle of Company, is that it, without a plot and without characters who, who on the surface seem to have a, a lot of depth, I mean, nobody, you know, it's like, we're, we're sort of adding depth into everything we're talking about, you know, on okay. the surface, you know, it's not necessarily there, which is why there's sort of wonderful things for actors to jump into. Yeah. But the miracle seems to be that there isn't really a plot that the genius, I think, ultimately is in the score that just propels you forward, constantly surprises you, delights you, moves you. And it's sort of like being in a magician's hands. And of course, Hal was right there, as was Michael Bennett, in sort of making this, this absolute unique, and I think revolutionary thing. And I, I think, companies influenced i think that the comment i think songs that make comment you know we see a lot since that show there are characters who can stand outside and make commentary perhaps mm-hmm. i can't think of them but i, I think they're there mm-hmm. but it is the like way i the said
3: cabaret the cabaret does i mean the way that cabaret sort of comments on the action in a different way right uh, but company is in its own way unique in that too. I agree with you completely.
4: It's iconoclastic because they, they, I mean, these were masters who knew what they were doing. And so they could break the rules by taking a number and letting it end, absolutely. Letting it comment on something but not move the story forward. And then Hal even talked about, I don't know if they really did this in the original production. Did they bow after certain numbers or they had played with this idea of like, he thought, should we interrupt it completely? Like do a number, bow, moving on to the next scene. He might've thrown that out, but he talked about this constantly breaking that,
2: that Well, anymore. you know, I, I had a conversation with Hal about it, and, and he actually told me that it did come from an influence of, of stuff like Pinter, and of Albee, uh, and uh, of Ionesco. Interestingly, that a lot of the sort of, ex, the French, the, the Pinter's, where you're sort of dropped into a situation where you don't know who these characters are. None of these people have backstories. I mean, like, what the hell do they do for jobs? You know, one friends? of them's one <laughs> of them's like an airline stewardess. You know, I th- and that's about the only one I'm thinking yeah. who I know what she does or they do. And, and he, how said they were sort of enamored by the way Pinter would just start a play and you'd have to figure out why they were in a room, what they were doing, where did they want to go? Because the revolution of the 60s and the late 60s was that there was no you know, that that it didn't follow traditional narratives and you didn't have to go through exposition. You were able to cut through all that. And in company, they're just all there. They're just there, you know, and they they become kind of both complete and sort of mysterious. And I always thought that was fascinating because I'd never heard that influence kind of put out there before.
3: There's another thing that's- What a wonderful, I never heard that. I think that's fascinating.
4: Did Did you find this, Lonnie, like the, experience of doing the show or having audiences respond to it i would get a lot of people who would tell me they were very emotional about the play or get very emotional about the ending and they would tell we were crying for you and i would say i don't think you're crying for you for me you're crying for yourselves there was so much energy coming back at us from people who would say i saw myself up there or i see i i recognize you guys you know like that mm-hmm. the was that had there been other plays when they wrote this, musicals in particular, that were really putting people, New Yorkers, sitting in an audience, watching New Yorkers behaving in New York the way they behaved right now. It's constant reflection of ourselves. Um, I think it's a big part of why the musical is so thrilling because it, makes, it doesn't pretend to be about someone else. It's happening now, right now. This is you, this is how we live now. Yeah.
0: Around that year. time would have been Promises, promises, but again, that that's hearkening from a you know, a 1950s movie, but they modernized it, which also would have been in 69. So that would have been the year before. But again, with the Burt Bacharach score and a modern pop sense trying to speak to a modern audience. but inevitably this, the, the plot was from a 1950s you know Billy Wilder movie. Yeah. I think that th- that was part of the reviews, the the, the, the the pushback that that they felt from the critics and the audiences because it was so different. They were not prepared. I mean, Sondheim's previous show before this had been "Do I Hear a Waltz," which could not have been more traditional Richard Rodgersy and kind of a you know Sunday afternoon yawn flop, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> Um, that they just were not. There was nothing to link it to. To go, this is sort of an extension. Even cabaret. You know, we think cabaret now is the Mendes version, but the original sixty six version was a, basically a book musical. It had book songs that came out of the scenes, and then there was the revolution of the MC breaking it and interrupting the show. But the scenes were on fully realized stage sets. Um, it wasn't just. But I think it was like- a
3: bridge. I think yeah. it was a bridge. And yeah. I think Hal knew that he I think Hal actually wanted to go further and abstract it more. But I think he knew he could only take the audience so far. Right. And um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I agree with you. And those techniques of commenting and all of that, I think, began there, uh, though I don't know where they began before that.
0: Probably um, like the Cradle Will Rock or things like that. There were little... The love adju- Life
3: apparently is that. Love Life. The learn, the, the Learner Wild Love life, life is apparently that, which I'm dying to see it, but you know, they were going to do it at encores and uh, they got aborted, but I think they are I think they may be filming it, so I'm excited about that. I'd really love to see a production of that.
4: There was no. a thing that we were working on, Anyone Can Whistle, and and we were doing the Sitz Probe, and Steve said he hadn't heard those orchestrations played in that sort of... Uh, format for a while years ago at Encores and he was so thrilled because he remembered that the orchestrator for that show was the orchestrator of Carousel and it meant so much to him to have fallen in love with that as a young man and then to have that Mm. man do his music but it wasn't a successful show and he said that the day he heard the orchestrations for Company was the day he said oh this is who I am like was, oh wow! That was the day.
2: That's did, was this Tunic's first show with him? Had Tunic? Yeah, this was Tunic's yeah. first show with him. Oh, exactly. Well, see that I think. See, I think that is key. You know, in many ways, again, listening to those orchestrations that we were talking about, that that established something for him. You know, new was that collaboration with with Jonathan Tunic, perhaps. Yeah. And
3: the other thing that you know we always talk about with Steve, which is so extraordinary, is is that. The difference, the man who wrote that doesn't sound like the man who wrote A Little Night Music, which doesn't sound like the man that wrote Pacific Overtures. The I mean, the, his chameleon-like, I mean, if you know Steve, you go, yeah, I hear him in them, but it also has nothing to do with one to the other, that he's right. able to change that radically. Yeah. His style, I think, is unlike anybody. I mean, Rogers was Rogers. You know, Kern was Kern. They were very, Arlen clearly was always Arlen. But Steve is able to, and also all the pastiche and follies of being able to take, you know, just copy and uh, imitate them brilliantly. Uh, His facility as a musician is, I think, more sophisticated probably than any composer that worked worked for the theater. I imagine, you know, more schooled probably as well.
0: He talks about, uh, at the time when, when he was working on Passion, that uh, James Lapine wanted to also do m- this show Muscle with him, that he ended yeah. up doing with, with William Finn. And the reason that he declined was that it, he says, this is a pop score, and I'm not, you know, I'm too old, I'm this isn't my style of music. And yet, this music, coinciding with him at that moment in the 70s, is a hugely pop score. Um, yes, but well, it was one his. thing I know. No,
3: uh, Judy Prince apparently. Uh, uh, Ladies who Lunch is. Is it a? Is it, It's not a Samba. What is it? It's a. Um, it's um, a bossa nova. Um, yeah. It's a bossa nova. Apparently, he wrote it straight, and Judy said, "Steve, turn on the radio." You know, <laughs> Steve, turn on the radio. And she. This is maybe lore, but she got him to make it the bossa nova. Uh, but that it was done, and I think it's done in this new production, not as a bossa nova. I think they've messed with it. Yeah, they altered it. But um I think he, you know, it does reflect the time it was written and um how smart of him to know that he wasn't able to do that. Although interestingly enough, I love that in Assassins there's kind of that little rock, you know, the song to Jody is kind of a pokey yeah. thing. And then at the end of Pacific Overtures Next, which is yeah. sort of a rock song. I don't know what it is, but um <laughs> I was working in, his, in Hal's office when that came in and everybody came running back after a run-through run. He wrote a rock song, you know what I mean? they <laughs> he wrote a rock song, you know? So, um, uh, anyway. That's amazing.
2: Lonnie, I, I have a question. I think I only read this recently, that Sondheim and Hal had been working on Follies prior to Company, was there? That, that, yeah. that and that Hal said, no, I want to do Company first that, that exactly. at least they had sketched, which I always find sort of interesting because I think of company being such an explosion that led into Follies and kind of conceptually for both of them led into working in this almost more plotless, style but
3: well, I my memory of it and michael you're probably more of the historian than i am is that steve and james lapine had written follies and it was more traditional
2: Mm -hmm. the girls they
3: lost their producer or lost their director or both Mm -hmm. and they brought it to how and how said sure i'll do that but we're going to do company first but that it was sort of um a more traditional thing and that how opened it up for them and made it have the ghosts and the memories and uh, the young and the old colliding and all of that. So um, that's that's my memory of the lore of it is, um, ah. but yeah, he did say, wait, I'll do that, but we're going to do company first. That I do know is that I remember. Yeah. Right.
4: I imagined it as a murder mystery or something originally. It was like yeah. got yeah. On stage. stage. Yeah, kind <laughs> of. Yeah,
3: I but it. I think it had, a pl- it had more of a plot <laughs> and it was um, uh, more uh, traditional. Is what i remember about that
2: i guess that's i i couldn't agree with you more about just that sense that he has of himself as a dramatist first and foremost you know that that his first thing is to serve the story which would mean to serve the times uh which sort of leads why the scores are so thrillingly eclectic and you know as you said if you know it you know it deep but if not you go oh my god he's captured absolutely these 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 worlds
0: but he also says that because he is so devoted to story that this was the most complicated because firth gave him nothing to hang on to there was no you know, there, there there were characters, but there wasn't plot. So you're right, Bob, in terms of what you said earlier, that it really, you, you feel the full force of Sondheim just roaring out of the gate in 1970. Yeah. And, and and you know, breaking free from Leonard Bernstein and Julie Stein and Richard Rogers and licking his wounds from uh, uh, Anyone Can Whistle, and now, Going, it's a new decade, and it's my decade, and here we go. I think,
4: I think too, it's important to not underestimate how significant his book writers are, because each of these scores is a response to what those par- writing partners put in front of you. Having done a piece by all, almost all of them, certainly Weidman, Lapine, and 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 George, you know, like John, James, and George, they are so different in their assess in their assessment of the world whether there's a sort of brittleness to one of them the, the smart sophistication of the way that George writes it's mirrored in Merrily and in the way that company sounds and the way of James is I think of a, a a poet and so those scores have a kind of response to his poetry and John is a brilliant thinker about a huge vision of the world and 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 then there's a kind of cutting through of that it's not coincidental that he, probably, he wrote a rock song for a John Weidman score there's a real response in that conversation between what these guys put in front of him and the he sets to music,
3: too. I mean, he always talks about the collaborators. I mean, if you ever say the score is by Steve, he always, in all the things I've done, You have to mention the book writer. It's never a Stephen Sondheim show. It's never a Stephen Sondheim show. Um, And just piggybacking on what you were saying, Hugh Wheeler, who I think is just a brilliant librettist. And uh, I think Night Music is as good as any libretto ever written for anything. It's just...
4: I can never... Those are the two shows. The Sweeney and Night Music are my like, is that my favorite musical? (laughs) My favorite musical. No, is that that, my favorite musical?
3: (laughs) But his response, I agree with you, Earl. His response to those men and how different they are and how much... He loves and admires them and how protective he is of them. Yeah. In, in in the in the years that the other thing I just wanted to say too is as a director working, what I've learned from Steve almost more than anybody is what does this piece mean now in this environment, in this theater, at this time with those actors? Not what we never, what we did in 1970, what we did in 1980, ever does he ever say that to me. It's always What does it mean here? What is this moment about right now? And um, I I don't know of other, I don't know of other authors who have had that much success who are not trying to protect the memory of the great production they did 30 years ago. And he's uninterested in it, uninterested at all in in revisiting the past. It's all about, look at, you know, Marianne's production now. I mean, it is just, couldn't be further away from Hal's production or John's and mine.
5: Somebody I wanted to work with Marianne, so and she has a vision of it. And, and um, nice. you know, I would have done the same thing with Jerome Robbins. And did, in fact. It's a little blush-making, but I admire Marianne so much that if she said she wanted to turn it into a dog, I'd probably go <laughs> go along and do it. I'm going to remind you of that. Well, that <laughs> yes, well, you've already done a show about a dog, so you, you know, it's not going to happen again. Yeah. <laughs> um, But uh, no, seriously, I I do admire her so much, and it's hard for me to imagine it except the way it was written. It's very hard for me to think of Bobby as a woman. So we've had a number of talks, and I've taken a lot of notes, and I'm going to try to get into the female psyche. You know, it was easy enough with Bobby because I can get into that psyche easily, the male one, but getting into a female psyche is a whole other matter, and particularly contemporary woman you know when I think of a woman I'm thinking of my generation it's a very specific story about a very specific person and very specific friends at a very particular time but the fact that it can translate to a different context just shows how universal it is
2: I loved it I mean I I actually had the same sense of hearing the show at 16 like two years ago seeing that show in London it yeah. just, I mean, how brilliant is TikTok, for example? Like TikTok. I mean, you sh- somebody should describe it better than I did. You know, a number that always seemed like, okay, we need a pas de Dieu to indicate that Bobby's having sex w- yeah. with April. And then to turn it into a woman's clock literally ticking and a that's desire that's to nice. find a partner. And then it turns into a nightmare. Yeah. of children, of babies, like what you wish for. I just thought it was truly one of the you most think. stunning directorial moments I've I, ever and seen. And
3: so brilliantly staged too. I mean, the idea was great and then the staging was flawless. It's, it's glorious. I like it too.
2: I hope it gets to open.
0: I, I'm dying to see it. And no suicide it will. at the end.
2: No, but there are, there are some moments in that that, you know, If you know, the thing is, if you know it as well as the two of you do, the three of you do, when you see it, you are just thrown back, don't you think, Lonnie? You're just thrown back. Yes, Those yes. sets and, and another 100 people, for example. I mean, it's just, there are some moments that just like go, wow. Which is, again, we, I think it comes back to what you said, Lonnie, which I think is true that he's always there for reinvention, always open to the new. And there isn't anybody really like it. When you talked about it being, he is like our Shakespeare. A lot of people throw that around with a lot of people. But when you have a body of work like Steve's over these years, and the fact is the same way with Shakespeare, we're constantly reinterpreting. We're constantly bringing a new point of view. A director has the freedom to bring it. I think Sondheim shows are gonna continue to be that way forever. we're going to look at that body of work as the quintessential telling us who we were about citizens in the 20th, 21st century. But yet, those plays can live beyond the same way great masterpieces live.
3: I completely agree. Absolutely.
5: I'd like to propose a toast.
1: Home Company. No strings, good times, just chumps company.
5: I've always wanted to do it. I love the music so much. I um, wanted very much to update it to now. I wanted to work with Marianne, and she has a vision of it. I admire Marianne so much. The Olivier goes to
2: Company. 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 Patti for company.
1: I think actors are only as good as their directors. And I have been extremely
4: fortunate to work with Marianne Elliott. I so want to be married. I've done it
5: three or four times. We wanted it to feel contemporary and fun. Because she's a woman, everybody has an opinion about what she should do. <laughs> then you leave a person dangling, sadly. Outside your door, which it only makes a person gladly want you even more.
1: Here's to the girls who stay smart, aren't they a guest?
5: Let's hear it for the
1: ladies to lunch. Everybody rise.
5: It's a really well-loved it's piece. And even though it's a universal story, it's very specifically written for Manhattan.
0: So, as we wrap this up, i, I we've been about an hour. I know we could probably talk about this for another hour. Uh, I like to just kind of close out with 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 a question that um if somebody were to come to you, they've got tickets to see this show company. I've never seen it before. I don't know what to expect. What should I expect? I'm going to go see this thing. Never, it's going to be a class A production. What do you tell them? What should I expect from this show? Never heard of it. Don't know what it is.
2: What a great question. Question. <laughs> it's, it's the a question stumper. The space. How
0: should I prepare myself? <laughs> to see this show.
3: Well, one thing you might say is forget everything you know about musicals. Just, it, it is unlike any musical you'll ever see. So any expectation of, go in with no expectation of, of any um, thing you have already been familiar with, because it is unlike anything you've ever been familiar with. But I don't know that that would make somebody want to go. So I'm, I'm <laughs> wanting to sell tickets for you. So I'm not sure that that actually is the best thing to
2: say. Isn't that great, though, that we're still saying that? for a show written in 1970, that you can still say to somebody, okay, we know you're a traditional, you know, we know you, you love musicals. We know you love musicals. And you're going to go see something called Company that you've never heard about or seen. And you still describe it the way you did Lonnie. is kind of amazing, you know? True. You can't instantly go, it's about this, or it's about that. That What comes is have an open mind, Yeah, you know, just... Experience it. Just be open to it, Michael. Yeah. What do you tell? What do you tell people, Michael?
0: I tell them you're 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 about to see something that is going to be like nothing you've ever experienced in a musical before. In a musical, yeah. it uh, it's you're going to see a revolution happen that happened fifty years ago, and it keeps happening every time somebody puts it on a stage.
1: Mm.
0: You're about to experience that same revolution again.
4: Raul, how about you? Uh, Raul. This show that's about you, just going back to what I said earlier, mm-hmm. and that it's about growing up and learning to love yourself, actually. And it may not seem like that on the surface, but this one is actually about you.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I was moved when you talked about the audience responding to uh, – being alive you know in in, you know crying at your performance and you throwing it back to them i don't see how anyone can't be deeply moved by that number because who hasn't felt what bobby feels i mean who hasn't who who in the world has never experienced some of the fear the anxiety uh, the desires that bobby Uh, sings
4: we all go through that moment i think it's it's uh such a profoundly beautiful thing that happens for him. He breaks. Steve said "It's like it goes from a scream to a prayer by, 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 by the end, the, the, the song like... actually in its modulation. And he, in that prayer at last, there is this moment, that, that gesture that I described that Bobby wants to make, which is, you know what? I have to live anyway. I have to, it all sucks maybe. Nothing's perfect. Nothing works out. Nothing's going to go the way I thought it would. It's going to hurt. So what? It's it's better to live anyway. I say that all the time about Bobby. That's the central lesson of that show. And it's so moving, I think, to everybody to be like, you know what? It's I'm here for what it's worth. I should be here 100%. And that's what the show is asking us to do. For all the
0: comparisons that are made of Sondheim to being our... Shakespeare, this is his Hamlet. This is his total human being on stage, I think, Bobby. Guys, thank you so much for your time today. I I loved having this conversation and I'm honored that you took the time to have it and uh, and get together to talk a little bit about Stephen Sondheim, who we all love. Thank you it's so pleasure. much.
3: Thank you, guys, thank you, thank you Bob. Bob. Thank you. A
2: wonderful conversation, Michael, thank you for organizing this wonderful bye guys thank you